turn our attention to what might be called the libertarian left, or more popularly, anarchism. This is the same logic shared by Marx and Freud. Functioning libertarian socialist institutions, I think they are an interesting model that uh, I think is highly relevant. Taking notes for this was ridiculous. Like, I could not spell anything. And every time I approached a word, it was like respelling it for the first time. <laughs> I spent the entire time being like, I know how to say Deleuze. How the hell do you say his name? And I felt bad because, you know, he's dead. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyways, we're putting the ish in theory ish. Welcome to theory ish. <laughs> Hello. How do we begin this thing again? Hello. Yeah. Welcome to Theoryish. Today we're going to be looking at A Thousand Plateaus by Deleuze and Guattari, and we're looking at Chapter One and Chapter Five. Dare we say Chapter One is actually the introduction, but we're calling Chapter One. And to join us in our misery is one of my really close friends and dare we say colleague, Veronica Ethel. You are allowed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> She is a PhD student in the history of art at Humboldt University in Germany. And also we did art history together. So we know how much we've suffered under theory. (laughs) Veronica, welcome. Thank you. All right. So to start, why Deleuze and Guattari? Who are they? Let me tell you. Deleuze and Guattari are usually put together. They got together under the French school of thought. So I believe they worked with Foucault at some point. And then Deleuze was either a year ahead or a professor of Guattari. And the text is really confusing as to how they got together there's not a lot of detail, but something that has been stable in all of the texts that I've read on them has been that they got together because in 1968, France was undergoing very radical changes. There was an increase in protesting, there was changes to academia, and the two of them alongside Foucault and all of these other philosophers we're really going forth and solidifying the French school of thought. And we were kind of talking about it, especially it's reflected on the text. Uh, Guattari and Deleuze, which sounds really wild to say, they're kind of like the young boys on the block. They're a little bit younger than everyone else. They have more radical ideas. They're going about philosophy in a very unprecedented, very uncouth novel way. And it really is reflected in the text. A Thousand Plateaus is their second book, am I correct? It's at least the second part of uh, Capitalism and Schizophrenia. And I believe their first one was Anti-Oedipus, in which this book is also a big in response to. My personal involvement with Deleuze and Guattari is through Anti-Oedipus. I used a little tiny bit of it in my master's thesis, but I didn't really comprehend what I was reading. So it's quite exciting to come back to them and just sort of finally be able to discuss what it is they do. (laughs) So with that, I'm going to throw this over to Veronica. 
why did you make us choose this? <laughs> because it's really hard to read Deleuze and I want to uh, reduce all of the obstacles kind of to make people talk about this and start discussing it uh, because it's not the easiest piece of theory, I would say, and it's not the easiest text to approach. So this is one part of it. And also I just started looking into it kind of because I um, had the idea of including this into my PhD project, which is on GDR photography. And my main thesis is to basically challenge the interpretation of GDR photography that has been going on so far of the categorization between official and non-official art and photography. And I feel like Deleuze and Guattari, they have a good approach towards making a blurry line between these categories and making a more open approach towards networks and categories. So I think that's kind of interesting. And yeah. And also to those who don't know, when uh, Veronica talks about GDR photography, she's talking about the German Democratic Republic. Yes. Am I correct? Yeah. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because uh, for us, it's insider baseball. We're having a lot of geography people listening. So Interesting. They may know who the GDR is, <laughs> but for some people may not know what you mean by GDR. Uh, so just laying it out there. But this is also where our works are very similar. We both work in that middle space between what is considered art, what is considered documentation, what constitute as image and what constitutes as like journalism even at some points at least on mine the photography can take part as oh this is just you know something that they put in an album for memory but then it becomes and something else as like time passes by and I can see why you chose this text I'm still a little bit salty <laughs> and also I think they are talking a lot about like the matter of representation and semiotics. So that's especially interesting for art historians and photography. And I think they didn't intend to like make this an art historical theory, but many art historians are using it, especially in this context and with like photography in a political regime that is very restrictive and that opens up these categories. And Hannah, what is your relationship with this text? Had you ever read any Deleuze? I have never read Deleuze. This was my very first time. But actually, you know what? After I got past the hard parts, <laughs> it was actually a blast. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed the writing style, even if it's not a very friendly writing style. I put a note when I first started reading that says, this seems like the kind of work that rewards you for persevering. It's chipping away at your misunderstanding kind of slowly until it starts to make sense. At least that's how I found it. But I also wonder, like I was talking to a friend today and a lot of queer theorists use Deleuze. And after reading it, I, it kind of makes sense to me. But I wonder if because I have a kind of queer theory background, this mishmash and the kind of way of discussing almost makes sense to me now in a way I don't think it would have done. Yeah, I, um, we're going to go further into it, but in queer theory and queer history and just anything queer, we use a lot of assemblage in which this text is very heavy on. What exactly assemblage is in this text is everything all at once. <laughs> it's something that it, queer theory is still using to this day. So I think this is why Deleuze is so relevant. And 
we knew he was gonna come up we, when we start this podcast one of the first things I said was like oh god I hope we can wait on the Duluth stuff and then I'm like oh my dear friend what do you want to read and you're like the one thing that you didn't want to read <laughs> also Duluth with a big question mark because I wasn't sure myself do I really want to read it <laughs> And it's back to Hannah's point. It's one of those you start reading it and you're like, oh God. And then at the end, you're like, I have overcome. I faced my fear. And I think partly is also, you can tell that they're having fun writing this. They are enjoying their theory and they're happy to go insane with it. <laughs> yeah, there's a really good quote from the first chapter, which comes towards the end of the chapter. But they say, quote, we are writing this book as a rhizome. Also, we'll get to the rhizome stuff and the plateau stuff. But they say, we are writing this book as a rhizome. It's composed of plateaus. We have given it circular form, but only for laughs. Each morning we would wake up and each of us would ask himself what plateau he was going to tackle, writing five lines here, ten there. We had hallucinatory experiences. We watched lines leave one plateau and proceed to another like columns of tiny ants. End quote. So you can kind of see, like, they're just having fun with it. And they're also writing, like, what, ten lines a day? Also, a big factor in this. This was published in the 80s. Anti-Oedipus was published in the 70s. This is also peak drug usage in academia. And they're very much of that school of thought. <laughs> they are known to be taking, like... CIA provided LSD. And if you want to know more about that, there are plenty of other podcasts that can explain that to you. <laughs> it is not a conspiracy if it's true. <laughs> but it does change the way that they're approaching the subject and like using hallucinogenics. This is the end of the hippie era and onto the true like right-wing America as well. Like this is like Reagan about to enter. Thatcher is already in the picture. The wall will be coming down in 10 years in Germany. This is also, the it's its own little plateau. It is about to change everything. So I think they are coming in at a point where I think they can sense like a shift in culture, but they're still very much part of that 70s wild age stuff so it's a really interesting text to read and i think with that we should start the actual text <laughs> so i have a starting place for us which doesn't actually come from the text but kind of does so before reading any of this i read brent adkins book that goes over a thousand plateaus so it gives you an introduction to the book and then takes it chapter by chapter and I'm going to attempt to explain discontinuity and continuity and I'm just like pre-warning both, both you two and the audience that this is about to get a little bit hard and I, I have a very tenuous grasp but I'm going to attempt it because I think it's important and uh, it helped me understand the book as a as a whole. So Adkins describes Deleuze and Guterri as metaphysicians, which are basically experts in or students of a type of philosophy that deals with abstract concepts such as being and knowing. So firstly, all you've got to understand is that it's abstract. It's difficult. It's, it's not dealing in the empirical here and now. 
It sort of is, but more abstract. And so before they kind of come along, there's a dominant trend in Western metaphysics that comes from something called discontinuity. And discontinuity can be seen in Plato. And this is where it gets kind of hard because (laughs) discontinuity essentially is finding a difference between things. So let me describe it in this way. Beauty and beautiful things are different things. Good and particular goods are different things. So there's a discontinuity between things. And this deals with something called hylomorphism. Again, more terms, more confusion. But hylomorphism is essentially the metaphysical view that every natural body consists of two intrinsic principles, one potential primary matter and one actual substantial form. And so an example that Adkins gives is, in Plato, the ability to recognize any sensible object as beautiful depends on its participation to some degree in the form of beauty. In this case, the integrity and universality of beauty itself is maintained, while we can still admit that sensible objects can be more or less beautiful. That's a confusing way of also still saying that there is a discontinuity, there's a separation. And so, basically, Deleuze and Guattari have an issue with this, because discontinuity requires something called the doctrine of analogy or resemblance. So, again, this comes from Adkins, who's better at explaining than me. (laughs) To claim that a statue is beautiful, several related things need to arise. The statue doesn't need to be beautiful in the same way that beauty is beautiful, and a sensible object uh, is not identical to intelligible forms of beauty. So in some respects, it's not beautiful. And so if you have an analogy, so this doctrine of analogy, it entails that you have some kind of affirmation or negation. And they have an issue with this because they say doctrine of analogy fails at the task of metaphysics. So they're saying it fails at almost like this abstraction. And so they reject discontinuity in all their work Deleuze is doing this before a thousand plateaus and also uh, Guattari's doing it but also in a different kind of field and they they kind of turn towards something called continuity so the description that's given is the continuity of the sensible and the intelligible entails the univocity of being being is said to be everywhere in the same way being speaks with one voice. And so it rejects hylomorphism, which is that idea that things are separate, and instead replaces it with hylozoism, which is coined by somebody called Ralph Cudworth in 1678. But it's basically saying, quote, to describe matter as living is to impute it to the power of self-movement or self-organization, a position that can only be seen as inherently contradictory by those holding any kind of hylomorphism, which held that matter received its motive force from an external principle. Basically, all you need to know really is that Deleuze and Guattari like movement in an abstract way. They like things to be messy. They like not having really answers to questions. And so they don't want to claim that things are different from one another. We'll get to it in the rhizome bit. But if you see the rhizome through this idea of continuity, that's why they talk about all these connections, because it's all connected in their mind. Basically then, A Thousand Plateaus is an exploration of assemblages or plateaus, same thing, in which Deleuze and Guattari demonstrate how to create concepts in a way that doesn't presuppose 
a metaphysics of discontinuity. So this whole book is arguing for a metaphysics of continuity. And every chapter has kind of a date attached to it, apart from the Rhizome chapter. And there's a reason for that that I didn't get around to. <laughs> but basically, they want to think about the plateaus as intensive processes. And intensivity, all you need to know, is really that it's continuity itself. So again, it's that continuousness. I think, yeah, you were already hinting at the fact that they talked about the problem of stasis in their works they published before and after A Thousand Plateaus, am I right? Or did you just base that on the um, works before A Thousand Plateaus? No, it is before and after. The Adkins argues that every book they do is talking about continuity. And, you know, as somebody who doesn't know anything about Duluth, I was convinced. <laughs> That's kind of interesting because I think they do have their big problem with it and it seems to be like part of all of their work, I guess. And in the first chapter in the introduction, the Rhizom, they also put out their the problem they have with the tree of knowledge and that was also a new concept to me apparently it's quite a big thing within philosophy and it goes back to plato and a very western minded hierarchy within modes of thought making and knowledge and i found one quote that is quite interesting where they directly critique it uh, quote It is odd how the tree has dominated Western reality in all of Western thought, from botany to biology and anatomy, but also gnosiology, which I don't know what this is, theology, ontology, all of philosophy. We are tired of trees. We should stop believing in trees, roots and radicals. They've made us suffer too much. All of aborescent culture is founded on them from biology to linguistics. The tree and root inspire a sad image of thought that is forever imitating the multiple on the basis of a centered or segmented higher unitry. unity. Or unitry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess they put out this like idiom of the tree of knowledge for the purpose that it visualizes non-ambivalent logical hierarchical structures and they want to fight this kind of approach with the rhizome. And I think that's a good start. Before they uh, start talking about the rhizome, they put out there, okay, this is what we are critiquing. This is what so many theories and philosophy are based on and we want to challenge this concept. And I think this mode comes up again and again in all of the chapters or like especially this chapter. And I think the beef that they truly have with the with the with this tree is that it insists that there is a patient or point zero of knowledge, that there is a root and everything, literally that's why it's a tree. There is a root and then it spreads out. When they're pushing for a continuous form of knowledge or a continuous stream of X, Y, and Z, There is no beginning, there is no end, there is just a loop. It would be a better example for them to instead be like the cycle of precipitation. You know, water heats up, it forms into a cloud, the cloud eventually becomes too full of water, it rains, and then the entire cycle starts all over again. With that, there is no beginning or end, there's just an actual continuous cycle. So their big beef with this, it is that there is no tree. <laughs> Screw the tree. The tree is just there. And I don't know if this is referring to something specific, but I think it's a good example again. Adkins is just the person helping me through all of this. But um, Adkins talks about Deleuze 
thinking that philosophy is misguided by the assumption that the thinker naturally seeks the truth in Deleuze's specific work. Deleuze kind of seeks to ask who wants to know the truth? Under what conditions was this person driven to search for truth? And truth has kind of an essential relation to time. So rather than almost getting from that point A to point B, it's saying actually all these things are muddled up together. There's more interesting questions that can be asked. Also more questions of how rather than what. That's also kind of interesting. That's a part I read in introductory article. But I think the whole Rhizome methodology is more about how do you build a Rhizome? How do you like read and work with a Rhizome rather than what is a Rhizome? What exactly is this? I mean, that's hard to answer anyway. But yeah, it's more in the process and thinking about how we like approach things. Yeah, like right on the second page, they're sort of showing their stress with this sort of thing. It's like a very short quote, and it's literature is an assemblage. It has nothing to do with ideology. There is no ideology, and there never has been. So it's one of those just like, how about I chop down this tree of life? <laughs> and then it becomes vertical, like a plateau. And I also took notes about that quote. Basically, ideology is a system of ideas and ideals so it forms the basis of economic or political theory and policy and they're basically saying it doesn't exist in literature <laughs> i've never heard of her <laughs> big bold claims <laughs> yeah we need to remind listeners this is page two <laughs> they're like yeah we have beef and we want to start beef also i really enjoyed like the beginning of this chapter And I think when they're saying, like, since each of us is several, there was already a crowd, is a kind of poetic way, at least in my mind, maybe I'm being dumb, is a poetic way of saying there was starting to be this crowd around continuity. So they wrote that anti-Oedipus, as far as I'm aware, it really, like, split people, right? They were yes. either very into it or they were either very not into it. And I can talk about that a little bit more in a minute. To be kind of funny about it, they really did open up the book as to all our haters. <laughs> Listen up, we have more things to say and we're not done. This was just the beginning, boy. This is page one. Page two is we have beef with Plato. And page three is, okay, by the way, we did drugs. <laughs> We have beef with all of them. How did we get to this point? LSD. <laughs> I was reading the first three pages and I'm like, this sounds like some like East Coast, West Coast rap battle from the 90s. I hope Lynn Manuel Miranda does not steal this idea. It was, yeah, it was so much fun. <laughs> so I think we need to define assemblage. I did actually find a quote, which is maybe not the best way to define it because this is quite complicated itself, but might be a good vantage point. I think this is on one of the first pages and it says that, quote, an assemblage in its multiplicity necessarily acts on semiotic flows, material flows and social flows simultaneously. There's no longer a tripartite division between a field of reality, the world, and a field of representation, the book, and a field of subjectivity, the author. Rather, an assemblage establishes connections between certain multiplicities drawn from each of these orders so that a book has no sequel, nor the world as its object, nor one or several authors as its subject. And What I perceive 
from this quote is that an assemblage is basically another work for a network of connections between either participants or entities of different spheres. And it then further gets described via the rhizome in the way these plateaus or subdivisions of the assemblages are connected with each other i don't know what you get from like reading the first couple of pages yeah so if you think about the continuity and discontinuity thing essentially that's what they're describing right the assemblage is talking about the continuity so if i start with this and it's going to make no sense sorry so the book is called a thousand plateaus and a plateau is essentially an assemblage and a plateau is a particular way of answering a question what is a thing so each chapter is kind of going what is this thing it gets more complex than that but <laughs> if we start there and if we think of traditional accounts of things in an abstract way it focuses on more stable discrete universal and eternal Deleuze particularly likes to think about mathematics and the way that numbers provide this discrete stable thing for us to focus on whereas he doesn't like that and tries to do his own thing with mathematics which is far too complicated for here whereas plateau is more like you were saying veronica it's more temporary it's more intensive it's different plateaus and again i think this comes from atkins will of course exist on different temporal and spatial scales so the term plateau actually comes from gregory bateson's work in anthropology and they describe it like you were saying this like continuous self-vibrating region of intensities whose development avoids any orientation toward a culmination point or external end again basically constant movement a plateau is a geographical formation in which two tectonic plates are hitting each other forming a mountain and eventually those tectonic plates just stop and that is the plateau it's just like that moment of stasis before it either crumbles or goes and extends. So it's also the concept of potentiality of that single thing. So not only is it in flux, it's also what can it become? It goes into that continuity because at this point it is a plateau, but it's going to form into something else and then plateau again. So it just comes back to geology and like life. This is, um, we didn't say it in the beginning, but this work is very, very interdisciplinary. And Paula, I think you established that, but we're talking about literature, we're talking about maths, we're talking about psychoanalysis. But um, the last thing I kind of wanted to say is intensities is its own thing in their work. So a plateau is constructed of intensities and intensity brings us back to this idea of continuity again. So intensities is continuous gradations rather than discrete points. So rather than a particular point, it's again this movement, this messiness. They love it. This is why queer theorists love Deleuze, I think. Don't they say that a plateau is never finalized? It's always in the middle of something so that it is basically a process itself. And I think this is also central to their theory. I read somewhere that they are basically opponents of essentialism and a finished product or arriving at a certain point, but that everything is always in the making, is always a process. And that also like thought making is a process itself that we will never achieve a final point. And that's 
kind of interesting that they already put this within the main terms of their theory. Yeah, and I don't know enough about post-structuralism to say whether Deleuze and Guattari can like fit into it exactly, but a lot of their terms seem to come from a post-structuralist point of view, uh, at least as far as I was Googling. <laughs> Well, also, they're post-structuralists. They don't want to be called post-structuralists. <laughs> it's the same thing with Foucault. He was he was just like, I'm not a post-structuralist. He was like, ew, don't call me that. That's where the nerds live. <laughs> you know how come? Like, or do they have generally problems with everything and everyone? They're contrarians. <laughs> they were like, you don't know who I am. Like, <laughs> like it's not a phase, mom. You know, like <laughs> you won't understand me anyway. Let's publish a book. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! If they were alive today, they would have an emo fringe and tell us that they're misunderstood. Like <laughs> they wouldn't even be in academia. They'd be like, no, I'm too cool for academia. I'm just gonna write like random books from the fringe of society <laughs> you know like bjork's recent album like connect do 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 that that would be them they're just in the forest jamming to bjork <laughs> being like everything is a plateau <laughs> being like it's harder to get lsd now what the hell <laughs> <laughs> we miss barbiturates <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, this is my entire point to say that Deleuze and Guattari would love Bjork. <laughs> they really would. <laughs> okay, with that said. Deterritorialization. Can we just define that before the rhizome? This book is one of the books where they start to unpack this term a lot. So what I found on this, and this is my own words, uh, so I'm not quite sure if I'm correct. I found on territorialization that it refers to how protected, disciplined, controlled or held in place an assemblage or a structure or a plateau or a rhizome is. And then re-territorialization means in that context the enforcement of the discipline, while deterritorialization, on the other hand, is the opposite process where structures are less polished or held in place. I don't know if this is very helpful. I think they often talk about deterritorialization because this is part of the rhizomatic theory and the goal of it eventually, I guess. We're going back to the mess. They love the mess. <laughs> I want to say throughout the book, they also make their own diagrams to attempt to explain exactly where their mess is like, but there's no start or finish to any of these diagrams. They have it labeled in numbers once more, referring back to like mathematical points. And then usually at the tail of their diagram, there is a continuous arrow, which in graphing terms, it goes towards infinity. So it's going into once more, like not graphic, but graphing, where there is no point, it just goes into infinity. In calculus, you work between negative and positive infinities. So I think that that's what they're also going towards. When you look at it mathematically, you can have a point, but that point is part of an infinite number of numbers that does not exist. That's why you have the infinity sign. There's no beginning or end. It's just infinity. And I think that's why they're relying on mathematics and why this is such a mess. The rhizome is like what this whole chapter is about. 
Well, dare I say this chapter introduces the rhizome and then the entire book is a rhizome, as they have said. Exactly. Like, yeah, it's on the rhizome, but it's also a rhizome itself. Very delusion. But first of all, I was wondering why they called it the rhizome, because if you haven't read it yet, it's just a bit weird of a term, like for a philosophical or post-structuralist theory. And then when you start reading it, you come to the tree of knowledge and then you see, okay, they make some tree references here or some root references. So it makes sense to call it rhizome. But a rhizome is basically another form of root and botanically seen a root that is more flatly hierarchized than a typical root or radical, and it can expand via multiple points. So that's basically the biggest difference I see here. Also, I didn't really get yet how a rhizome grows exactly, but I think you can cut it at some point and then it can expand. So it's not really predictable in which direction it grows and what is the center of a rhizome. So it's kind of the opposite of like a tree-like structure. And I guess that's what they are interested in or they simply love potatoes. (laughs) So uh, biologically speaking, when you take a cutting of a plant, It's to create an identical plant, but obviously no two plants are identical in how they grow because of its shape and environment and all those things. So it's like taking a sampling. You take a part and then you make another one. So the choice of words is very purposeful. Another definition I had. So I looked up the biological one and it's useful to think about the biological one because they basically using it in the same way in philosophy. So... The definition I saw said it was a concept in post-structuralism, which I don't know what Deleuze and Guattari would think about that, but (laughs) it describes a non-linear network that connects any point to any other point, which sounds simpler than they make it. (laughs) That's true. And also maybe interesting to add is that the rhizome describes something that is also in the making, a process. It's not a finished root system, but it's always non-predictable in which direction it grows and how big it can get, how it expands, basically. So on page 11, there's a quote where they say, right, form a rhizome, increase your territory by deterritorialization, extend the line of flight to the point where it becomes an abstract machine covering the entire plane of consistency, which I took that to mean basically go out there and spread the word of continuity (laughs) i highlighted it as well great minds (laughs) yeah they're basically like spread the ideas bestie because they also say on page 12 the rhizome is altogether different a map not a tracing make a map not a tracing so they basically say that a tracing is a bad thing because it's essentially reproducing something that is reproducing itself so they say it injects redundancies and propagates them whereas if you make a map you're making something new essentially it's kind of like don't represent anything create something new right yeah make new things if we think about a rhizome why then do we think it's relevant to this discussion I find it quite difficult, especially as a historian. We tend to rely on a cause and effect approach to things. This and this happened, which led to X, Y, and Z, which then led to this. And like that works in a series of patterns or samplings. And this was actually brought up today in conversation with a good friend of ours that Veronica, I hope you meet one day. And she was talking about her use of Deleuze very lightly 
for her work on British feminism and British Black studies. The danger of using definitive definitions of things and very linear history is actually quite detrimental because when you use linear structures, they tend to be exclusive. They only use one version of this and it doesn't take into account all the voices surrounding that one particular line. And I think that's where Deleuze actually comes in quite handy. Deleuze is like, actually, no, there is no cause and there's no effect. There is just a continuous stream of what is happening in that moment in time. When you look at it that way, it opens up research and it opens up different interpretations of the same event. And while there's no one definition, it provides a bigger picture of what that event could have looked like or could have felt like. What do you guys think of that? That's an interesting idea, definitely. Yeah, I didn't think about that before. Like, I mean, I, I know that Deleuze and Guattari, that they can be applied to many different disciplines, which is kind of interesting. It's not just art history, I guess. It's also social sciences and anthropology and queer theory. Like the initial thought I had is that for academic purposes, it's quite interesting because it's content and methodology all in one. And isn't this basically what every teacher wants? Like you need to have have a good methodology that mirrors your content or your argument. And I think this is also why this is so interesting to me, because I'm trying to find a theoretical background that mirrors my argument very well. So I guess since this theory is so open because it's so abstract, it's very helpful within many fields in academia. It's basically like opening up thought in really abstract ways. And it's one of those things, again, this is why I think if you sit down with it, it can actually be very rewarding. Like, I don't know about you both, but I actually found myself enjoying sitting down with this text and like really going through it. And I found it quite rewarding at the end when I was like, okay, this makes sense. Interesting. And I don't know, it's one of those things like, I really enjoy learning and I really enjoy things that almost like break that fixed learnt pattern in my brain. Maybe why I'm drawn to like queer theory as well. But I feel like this does that same thing, even if it's a little bit harder. <laughs> I I'm not sure. I'm not an expert. But isn't queer theory also something that came up kind of recently at the end of the 20th century? So maybe it also makes sense to see that in the context of the zeitgeist so that this philosophical theory mirrors the zeitgeist and that we are abolishing old concepts of thinking and categorizing society, people and the arts, for instance. So you can see the use of queer or at least queer theoretical thinking at the end of the 70s, as far as I'm aware. But it really starts to gather ground. I cannot remember the date off the top of my head, but it's like towards the end of the uh, 1980s, especially into the 1990s was really that time period. There is um, somebody who's labeled as like the first person to use queer theory in an academic sense. It's basically used at a talk, but yeah, it's in like the 80s and 90s. I was going to say, so The History of Sexuality by Foucault came out in 76 and didn't get an English translation until 78. I believe that is when it came out. I'm doing a very quick Google search, so do not hold me to it. 
But this is also, once more, the French school of thought relying on the breaking down of hierarchy with what is happening politically in 68, what is then continuing to happen in the 70s, and even what's happening now. We're recording right now in January, and there is a rise in French protesting right now, in which, you know, I think I saw like a barbecue on like a track while they're protesting. The French really have it down. (laughs) But this is also a time of consistent protest and the breaking down of these hierarchies. So of course, there's no linear structure to this. They're trying to break down that linear structure. And you can tell the passion that they have here for these things breaking down. One of the quotes, which I'm going to find, is this uh, capital S state's pretension to be the world order and to be root man the war machine's relation to an outside is not another model it is an assemblage that makes thought itself nomadic and the book a working part in every mobile machine a stem for the rhizome i've got a really good quote from adkins about this idea of breaking the world down where adkins says quote We're so used to thinking in terms of good sense and common sense that when these are replaced by stabilities that are the product of a process rather than the ground of that process, the resulting claims can be difficult to integrate. Deleuze and Guattari destroy the world in order to rebuild it. The difficulty is that what they have rebuilt is so at odds with our traditional way of thinking about the world that we're not entirely sure whether the world is ours or some alien vista. End quote. And I think that's just, yeah, what you're saying. It's breaking down in order to rebuild. Yeah, but it's also rebuilding without a foundation. Because if you're rebuilding without a start, that means you're building without an end. And how do you start something without an end? And how do you end something without a start? But I think they also see fallacies of their own theories, which is kind of interesting. I, I really like that about the text, that they are, first of all, kind of ironic about their own approaches. They are witty and they don't take themselves too seriously I feel like and at the end of the first chapter they have a couple of yeah critiques and fallacies on their own theory for instance that it's not easily applied to natural sciences since natural sciences definitely follow this very linear movement of logic more like in terms of the tree of knowledge I guess and that's kind of interesting I think because I don't see that quite often that you put your own critique within your own text. I guess it's a good place to think about their relationship to psychoanalysis because they do bring this up quite a lot. (laughs) They have beef. Before this book, they write two books. They write Anti-Oedipus in 1972 and they write Kafka in 1975. And Deleuze is known for his work in the history of philosophy. Oh my God. (laughs) He's known for his work in the history of philosophy And Gateri is also well known, but for practicing psychoanalysis at the Laborde Clinic. And he was deemed as Jacques Lacan's heir apparent. So he was kind of being trained to be Lacanian. And then... And then they write Anti-Oedipus. So in 1969, Gateri writes a paper called Machine and Structure and talks about something called the machinic unconscious, which is unconscious affects all kinds of perceptions and actions affecting the possible itself and all forms of communication. So thinking about the unconscious, basically. And then they work on anti-Oedipus, and 
Adkins says, quote, the result detonated on the French intellectual scene with the force of a bomb. It rearranged the landscape and forced one to choose sides, end quote. So psychoanalysis, particularly Lacanians, were, fu- th- I was swore, were annoyed, heavily annoyed <laughs> by this, especially, I guess, because Guattari was uh, being trained to be Lacan's bestie person. Even today, the French school has a lot of issues balancing, uh, and I'm talking the French school as in the entire country of France. (laughs) So France has a problem with psychoanalysis still. And I'm going to be referring specifically to Paul Precaido's really controversial 2019 speech that got turned into the book called Can the Monster Speak? In which Precaido, who is a trans man, was sort of regurgitating back a lot of these issues with psychoanalysis and their reliance on, uh, you know, Lacanian and Freudian thought around penis envy and just going back into binaries. And Ricardo actually could never finish their speech because they got jeered off the stage. And this was 2019. So Guattari and Deleuze popping up in the 70s were like, we got things to say. This close to like Lacan is a baller move. (laughs) So I was just wanted to drive in the force that like how insanely strong this like philosophical thought is and why their work was so controversial. Like you were saying, Deleuze and Guattari also have a problem in their book saying about the Oedipal drama and they say that every component of psychic and social life is refracted through the Oedipal triangle of mummy, daddy, me. So they were like, yeah, no thanks. (laughs) And they basically say that because of this mummy, daddy, me thing, there's a single meaning applied monotonously to all patients by psychoanalysis and so they propose something called schizoanalysis which sees the unconscious as a series of machinic connections disjunctions and conjunctions and this is kind of key it doesn't represent anything it means nothing that's drama to say that they were like everything you're saying mm, means nothing Uh, And so Adkins kind of says, not only is a Freudian thesis that society is the unconscious writ large undercut, they also undercut Marxist theory that says the unconscious is simply a reflection of material and economic conditions. They're basically like, none of it means anything. And if you're thinking about the continuity thing again, they say that the questions of schizoanalysis are questions that can be asked of any entity regardless of its scale or scope are what kind of connections constitute this entity and what further connections are made possible and impossible by this set of connections so if you ever read this book they also still continue this drama with psychoanalysis (laughs) throughout the book (laughs) (laughs) And it makes sense. Like, I think first I was quite shocked at their comments on Marx, but then it made sense. We're going to get into it once we start the discussion for chapter five. It's the breakdown of sign signifier. And Marx is coming back, especially within the Communist Manifesto, and renaming things, creating new signs for structures that already exist, like the language of proletariat and bourgeoisie. And then in Das Kapital with commodity fetishism, it's more words, more signs for things that already exist. So of course they have beef. They're like, we have to learn new words. 
<laughs> no, I don't want to. <laughs> what I got from both chapters is that the problem of psychoanalysis is, again, this pre-made thing that you already have the interpretation on hand so that every psychoanalytical approach, according to Freud, will lead to the anti-Oedipus, no matter what direction you take. So the unconscious is, or the unconscious of the patient is basically ignored because the psychoanalyst already has the interpretation on hand. And I think that comes back in chapter five with like their categorization of the signifiers. Uh, should we talk about the internet? So I ran into this really cool YouTube channel. I forgot the name. I'll put it in the show notes eventually, if I remember. <laughs> that described the rhizome using the example of the internet. And then I was like, well, of course this would be the internet. The internet was being created. <laughs> this came out in the 80s. This is the beginning of the World Wide Web. And sort of how they describe a map in which it has no start and no end. End, you just look at a map and see which point that you need to get to. You create your own points within that image, within that assemblage. The internet works in that way. If you think about it, there is no beginning or end to the internet. It just is. You click on a site which has a direct address, like when you work with a map, and you go to that address and you use it for when you need to use it. Or if you go down a Wikipedia rabbit hole where you just end up clicking in different things, there is no direct pattern. There's no direct start or finish. You just continue on an endless scroll. So I think the internet is a really good way to look at what a rhizome is. No beginning, no end, just is. And unless the internet cables ever like get corroded and shut down, there's no end to the internet. <laughs> so I just thought it was a really good analogy of it. And I think the internet itself has a huge influence on them. It's being created as they are writing. They're dealing with computers. You know, it's the beginning of a new form of communication, which I think goes back to sign signifier and their beef <laughs> with linguistics. Because with the creation of the internet, there's the creation of coding, there's the creation of computer languages, the structure to create images within this digital space, and a new form of communication in which at that time, you're reading and comprehending. Even us right now, we are seeing each other through this medium, but how did we start? We entered a thing that already existed and created a space for ourselves in which we can communicate. And then once this ends, we log out, but the website still exists beyond this point, even if we don't see it. So it's still in a continuous loop. We just selected a small part of it, which once more, I wish we could go into like <laughs> mathematics because that is a very mathematical way of approaching communication. Yeah, it's so interesting because I feel like the internet plays in the 80s, especially with it's coming up, plays a big role in many theories that also were created in the 80s. I'm thinking about Latour and his network theories. And I do see the existence of the internet that is described there and that somehow the rise of it did change the perception of how do we deal with science? How do we deal with codes and what are semiotics anyway? So that's kind of interesting in the context of time, I think. Yeah, I just I was googling to see what people had said about Deleuze and the internet, and there's quite a lot. There was also an article, I don't know how good it is, but somebody was like, why Deleuze would have loved the internet? And I was like, ah. 
Deleuze would have gone wild with TikTok. Endless scrolling, <laughs> no start, no finish. Number one Julia Fox fan. <laughs> it's an assemblage. Yeah. <laughs> Should we move on to chapter five? By the way, I'm just going to heads up for this chapter. I am not religious in the slightest. Never read the Bible. All this God stuff kind of went over my head. Same here. And I was forced to go to Catholic school. So (laughs) religious trauma really is coming back again. Well, I hope you guys are ready because guess what religious iconography also involves? Math. (laughs) It is discussed in here but like subliminally that numbers do actually work with it so in christianity specifically old-timey catholic before martin luther had beef with the vatican times numbers were used to represent signs of god so the trinity three the father son the holy spirit things in sevens to represent genesis and the days it took to build the world. In Revelations, there's a lot of numbers. Relevations is based on what was happening in Rome at the time. So that's why like, there's schools of thought around Christianity, that there actually is no end of the world. It already happened. And what we're living in is the end of the world. But that goes into wild Christian stuff. But there is also numbers. like It's where 666 comes from. So there is mathematics and numerology in religion. And with that, we start chapter five. (laughs) So if we start chapter five, before we get into the God stuff a bit more, let's think about Signifier and Signified. And you sent me a really good YouTube video, but I don't know if you want to discuss it because you'll know it more than me. So Sign Signifier is based on the 1916 Ferdinand Sessua work on the course in general linguistics. And... Basically, all of structuralism and post-structuralism is based around this man. So that's where Gramsci gets his ideas, Chomsky, all of any linguistics baddie really bases it on that. What Deleuze and Guterri do is just take a baseball bat to all of this. So what is sign and signifier? So signifier is an original icon, image, what you would think of as the original form of something. That can be a thought, that can be an image, that can be a symbol. So I think it's usually graphically shown as an icon, an image, or a symbol. And that's the signifier. The sign is the communication or interpretation of that signifier. So a dog is a dog. And when you describe a dog, that is the sign. So that is a very linear way of working it. And during the mid 50s to 70s, discussion on linguistics, it also uses that tree image in which the root of language is it's a specific source, whether you go into traditional linguistics where English is based off of like Greek letters and all that stuff. And basically there is an origin story to your language and then the branches become what it creates. So there is a signifier and then it turns into signs. And that can go into other forms of interpretation in which power can be both a sign and a signifier. But that is a discussion for a different day because I'm not particularly good with the sign signifier stuff. And honestly, I'm delighted that Deleuze is going, 
how about we stop this? <laughs> so Cesare is the one who comes up with, like you were saying, the sign signifier signified thing in linguistics. So one of the things De Cesare says is that there's no inherent link between the signifier and the signified. So an example of that, and we'll put it in the description, there was a YouTube video that Paula sent me that's actually very good at explaining this. But um, if we think about the letters D-O-G to mean dog, there's actually no link between those actual letters to that animal other than us as a society putting those letters together and going, that means a dog. Also, when we're thinking about a dog, which I really enjoyed this in this YouTube video, when we're thinking about a dog, we're not referring to a specific dog. Usually, we're referring to the concept of dogginess. So if we picture a dog, we're probably picturing different things, but they're broadly the same thing, right? I'm going to do an exercise. So, Hannah, what does a dog sound like to you? Woof. <laughs> Veronica, what does the dog sound like to you in German? <laughs> Woof. Woof. So in Spanish, a dog noise is wow wow. So I use that example to be like, dogs are <laughs> literally the concept of dog is different phonetically, depending on language as well. So the idea of a dog is there, but the interpretation of dog is different. Um. But Charles Sanders Pierce takes Dissus's ideas further and says that actually this idea of sign, signifier, and signify can exist outside of written or spoken language. And rather than suggesting that the signifier never has a link to the signified, there can actually be links. So like Paola was saying, there's the icon, so that's anything with a physical resemblance to the idea or thing it's trying to evoke. So again, if we go back to the dog, which again, taking from that YouTube video, is a drawing of a dog or a photo of a dog. So there's a clear link there. Index is a link to a thing that's being evoked by direct relation. So the YouTube video says that if you see smoke, usually you'll think there's a fire nearby. And if you see puddles, usually you'll think that it's rained, right? So there's a relation there. And then a symbol is there's no relationship between the signifier and signified, same as Dussezer was saying with language. Also, apparently traffic lights are an often cited example of this. So the red, orange, green, if you take that out of context, it really means nothing. <laughs> But we've decided as a society that red means stop. I don't know what orange means because I don't drive. And green means go. <laughs> yeah. So we're recording again. I really went for a little break. We've come to the conclusion that... So we we all picked the chapters, right? So we decided which chapters to cover. And we covered the first one because it covers rhizomes. And then we were like, this one sounds interesting. But even though these chapters are meant to exist almost like individually, I actually think that this is one of those that even though they don't have a linear narrative, it's hard to comprehend outside of reading the different chapters in the book. And so whilst we do have a bit we, <laughs> we could potentially say on it, I don't know how interesting that would be because as far as we can tell, there's no real end point or like point you can get out of this there's stuff about god 
um, and the sign signify it signified. And what, you know, I, I was talking before about kind of what that sign signifier signified men, but essentially all you need to know about that is Deleuze and Guattari are like, ew, I hate that. I don't want to look at sign signifier signified. And instead of thinking about that, they think about social formations rather than regimes of science. Or at least I think they are thinking about that there exists uh, different regimes of science or that they coexist and that within linguistics or language all of them are working together and I think this is at the end of the chapter and in between I definitely got lost and they say again that these regimes are just coexisting all the time and that one thing always comes with the other so that's that's at least what I got from this chapter. It kind of feels like we stepped into a middle of a conversation. It feels like we got snippets of it where we know where this is going potentially, but we do not know the start. It's like, how do we get here? So we read the introduction, we went to the fifth chapter, and it feels like we just stepped into a conversation that's been going on for like an hour, and we're just now catching up to it. We have like little snippets of things that we understand, you know, sign signifier, but we don't know what they mean by regimes because it was discussed earlier. So we're just sort of stepping in. So this is to say, like we said um, when we first started this podcast, that there's going to be points where we don't understand what is going on. we don't understand what's going on but we're having a good time (laughs) you know when we went into this podcast we were like oh yeah we can talk about chapter five but i think as we've gone along in this conversation we're realizing actually it's complicated it's not just complicated in the deleuze gateri way of being complicated like you said paulo we're stepping into a conversation and it's complicated in that way and i also just wanted to say so One thing that I did sort of get from this, so Guattari and Deleuze say, they give an example of a paranoid person being assailed by signs, so constantly seeing signs in everything, even in things that there aren't signs, and uses this as an example of signs being everywhere all the time. And they also talk about the signifier as constantly having to grow to accommodate for all these signs so i think what they're saying is especially if you think about it maybe you know like we were talking about with the internet as far as i'm aware like the sign signifier stuff has almost expanded to the point where it needs enhancing almost and i feel like that's what they're trying to do yeah and i think we were talking in our break the use of religion. And I think the one I understood the most was the religious aspect of this, because I grew up in the church. And I think the use of Judaism is very deliberate, because Judaism uses the Torah, which is reinterpreted in the Bible, it is not the same, It is reinterpreted as the Old Testament, and God speaks in signs. So we were talking about the burning bush and Moses, but I specifically, (laughs) to quote the Bible, (laughs) like in Genesis, it's Genesis 22, it's Abraham, kill your son. After these things, God decided to test Abraham's faith. God said to him, Abraham, and he said, yes. Then God said, take your son to the land of Moriah and kill your son there as a sacrifice 
eyes for me. There must be Isaac, your only son, the only one you love. Use him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains there. I will tell you which mountain. So God is speaking to him (laughs) and directing him. So during the break, I was explaining to them that God commanded Abraham to kill his only son. So God is in other words, the king. And the king is saying, hey, kill your son. I know he's your only son. And in response to that, Abraham says, okay, God, I'll take him to that mountain. And then God is continuing to instruct him just like, okay, this is the mountain. This is what you do. And then right before, so I'm going to scroll down. Let me see if I can find it. So this is going to be skipping ahead. Uh, Isaac said to his father, Father, Abraham answered, Yes, son. Isaac said, I see the wood and the fire, but where is the lamb we will burn as sacrifice? Abraham answered, God himself is providing the lamb for the sacrifice, my son. So both Abraham and his son went together to the place where they came to the place where God told them to go. Abraham built an altar. He carefully laid the wood on the altar. He then tied up his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached for his knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord stopped him. The angel called from the heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham answered, yes. The angel said, do not kill your son or hurt him in any way. Now I can see that you do respect and obey God. I see that you are ready to kill your son, your only son for me. So wild (laughs) to say the least. But if you notice, this is where I went like sign signifier. So the signifier is commanding. And then because of the sign that the signifier gave, Abraham goes on to do these things until interrupted by a sign, another sign, which is the angel. The angel is not God, but is a sign of God. And it's telling him, actually, you know what? You passed the vibe check. Don't kill your son. And he was like, what? Word. And then he returned back home. And then he had to face his son. Like, does that make sense? Or am I crazy? I think it does make sense. I'm just very lost with this chapter because what I was searching for is that they tie back to their rise and principles. And I don't really see that here. Do you see that? Like, I thought that this would come up again. And it does come up a bit with like the signifier or the signified semiotics that there is like a very static way of interpreting something that one sign leads to another sign. But apart from that, I don't see like the principles of the theory coming back too much in this chapter. The best way I can describe it, right, if the whole book is demonstrating how to create concepts in a way that doesn't presuppose uh, metaphysics of discontinuity, right, instead trying to do the continuity thing, then they're trying to talk about the ways in which this science signifier linguistic stuff actually doesn't have to fit into this model of discontinuity and instead can fit into this model of continuity by saying, actually, let's not do this. So I see it in that way, but I don't see it, if you get me. Like, I guess it makes sense, question mark. To kind of finish this chapter discussion off, Paula actually had something useful to talk about in the subjectification stuff and the way language is used to oppress. Oh my god, yes. This chapter had me in a tizzy. Like, I can only understand part of it. So, 
to do another very long quote. They say, quote, the songs of Black Americans, including especially the words, would be a better example since they show how the slaves, quote, translated, end quote, the English signifier and made pre-signing or even countersign use of the language, blending it with their own African languages, just as they blended old African work songs with their new forced labor. These songs also show how the Christianization and the abolition of slavery, the slaves underwent a proceeding of subjectification or even individuation that transformed their music while the music simultaneously transformed the proceeding by analogy. And also how the unique problems of faciality were posed when whites and black-faced appropriated the words and songs and blacks responded by darkening their faces another hue, taking back their dances and songs and even transforming and translating those of the white. That is a very convoluted way of saying many, many different things. And it goes into a loop where because of slavery... African-Americans created their own culture, which then got appropriated by white culture and then got reclaimed back by African-Americans. And it goes into like a continuous circle. And I think the usage of music is particularly interesting because if we think about like rap music started what in the late 70s, early 80s, and then it became even bigger in the mid 80s, it became its own officially its own scene in the 90s. And then you get the emergence of white rappers. And then it kind of dissipates for a little bit becomes hip hop, and then it reemerges back again. And it's reclaimed as African American. So I think the usage of music and rhythm and all these things, and also going back to faces, I don't know how to interpret that part. And I think it's, you know, this is from like, the late 70s, early 80s. So obviously some of the language is a little bit dicey. But yeah, if you, if you want to uh, head on in, Veronica. No, I just want to continue on on the matter of music because I realized that they are talking about music quite often in, in this context. And I just had the idea that they're kind of opening up the subject of linguistics towards more modes of expression and with that including also music as a mode of expression maybe. yeah. A hundred percent. You know, music has lyrics. Music has notes that you follow. It has, you know, sheet music. And that is another form of language. And music has a beat. And you have a sign to start singing within the music to help you start. No, I think it's once more, they're going into an interdisciplinary approach to even the rhizome here where, yes, they're talking about a loop. But yeah, you're a hundred percent correct. So they're critiquing, what are they critiquing exactly? Let me, (laughs) so they're saying something interesting, but what exactly are they trying to get at? Well, it's also that you can use someone's own language against them. The appropriation of black culture, specifically of the oppressed. So I think it's a very, it's very obvious that they're using slavery in this context, like They're talking about the appropriation of already a quite oppressed class of people, of people that have, that are very distinctly oppressed within the United States specifically. And then in appropriating their own work, it's used to oppress them even further, which is taking their culture away from them. And one of the only modes of expression they have in that context. Is this why, again, they're talking more about speaking about social formations other than the regime of science then? 
I believe so, yes. And I think this is where it's really complicated in this chapter, where I feel like it should have a little bit more explained. And it's really frustrating because this is right near the end of the chapter. It's a really great point that I wish they could have expanded upon. Because even in the same paragraph, they talk about how Christianity underwent strange creative translations in its transmission to the barbarian or even savage peoples. So it's even the reinforcement of like this beginning, literally me quoting from Genesis, the beginning of life itself, and having that enforced upon peoples, and that linearity being a suppressive force. And that way its sign signifier is used to justify very dark periods of our history, where if you use a rhizome approach, there is no beginning, there is no end, there just is a middle. That's a good summary. <laughs> I think you actually got chapter five. <laughs> Congratulations. You are I, don't I, I don't think I did. I don't think I did. I literally understood a paragraph and I was like I'm gonna make this my entire personality <laughs> that's good enough <laughs> so if we want to summarize our thoughts then and think about how did we feel about the text before and after discussion and would we read their work again would we delve back into this book or potentially other books Veronica if I start with you I think it does make sense to read the whole book as we could find out just now because all of the plateaus seem to be interconnected and that's also part of the rhizome that everything is kind of connected and in the process. So I think it would make sense, at least for myself, to read a bit further into the other chapters. Also, they are always dropping new terms that seem to be very relevant, like the war machine and the, uh, what was it, the abstract machine, and they come up in the chapter, but then you realize, okay, they're getting explained in another chapter. So I think it would be a good idea to, to read more of the plateaus and then to finally understand what a plateau is. And yeah, apart from that, I think discussing it with you guys is very helpful and fruitful. And I feel like it's not the most important thing to understand everything in particular, but for me at least, this text is very inspiring in the approach towards thinking and methodology. That's what I'm taking away from this. And I, I like the general, very um, anti-capitalist thinking that is behind that. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, it gets a go for me. <laughs> When you said, oh, I want to do this lose, I was like, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> I love you to pieces. And also, Paula, I hate myself for that because now I realize it's so... Hard. <laughs> but also this is the point of the podcast we sit down with this damn thing and we break it down as well as our little brains can do <laughs> and I think it was a really good time reading it by myself I don't think I would have had as such a good time interpreting it I did not have a good time trying to read anti-Oedipus I also did read that during the pandemic, so <laughs> not the greatest state of mind. So it was actually quite nice to come back to this and be like, wow, this isn't hell. This is actually quite fun. And I think discussing it out loud really did help sort of surmise our thoughts and cement what it was trying to say. So I think 
I do want to finish this book when I have time. So let's see. <laughs> but I think it's something that I, I'm going to be having in the back of my mind as I write my PhD. Because I'm trying to destructuralize interpretations of photography as you are as well. So I think we can't avoid Deleuze and Gutierrez. I think they're just here to stay. And now that I've read it, it's going to be haunting me. Yeah, I think... I really did enjoy it. I still enjoyed it, even if I'm a little bit confused towards the end. I think it's also one of those things, I think maybe different from you, Veronica, I don't need to use this in my work. It might become like influential in the back of my mind. Do you know when you read these things and you're like, wow, that was such a good idea. And then you're like, whoa, how's it made its way in here? But I think this is the kind of theory that is maybe not for beginners because it relies on like some of this former knowledge. But I do think it's very rewarding. And I think it's the kind of theory that probably best suits a no-pressure environment. Like I wonder how difficult it would be if I was trying to read this for a course. Like I wonder how hard I would find it. Whereas reading it for this podcast, you know, I, I was able to have a bit more fun with it. And even, like, not necessarily having to come away with, like, a solid understanding of it. I just think that allowed me to enjoy it potentially far more than if I needed to be, like, yes, I need to know exactly what they're saying. And I think that relaxed take also helps you, um, like, understand it a bit more. It's almost like a relaxed take on their own work. Like you were saying, Veronica, that they, they don't take their work 100% thousand million percent seriously they're having fun with it (laughs) so you almost have to have fun with it alongside them so yeah those are my kind of thoughts on it do we want to go over the fan fiction now so there is one called a person a book a rhyme zone by the person's name is a rhyme zone and it is creating an assemblage of an assemblage so they took a part of another book and mixed it with capitalism and schizophrenia and then they made their own little rhyme zone connecting all the things it was actually really cool so for once i'll actually read a selection of it it says a person is an assemblage of this kind and such is unattributable it is multiplicity but we do not know yet what the multiple entails when it's no longer attributed Fan fiction. <laughs> you know what the other book is there, uh, like they're using or no citations because it is what fan fiction exactly. <laughs> and then on a less uh, publishable note, I have not read this one yet. I fell asleep last night <laughs> before I got to read it. It's called Gulfport, a British petroleum fanfic. The texts are Lestat from Interview with a Vampire, Hipsters, Andy Warhol, Judy Bloom, Romance, Angst, Existentialism, Woody Allen, Rough Sex, Original <laughs> Characters, Nostalgia, Psychological Trauma, Psychological Drama, Psychologist and Psychiatrist, Passive Aggression, Power Play, Power Dynamics, and Reality TV. I cannot wait to read this. And it has 13 chapters, 105,109 words. 
It's crazy. And this is only part one of two. The second one is yet to be finished. And it has 38,811 words. So the reason I included this is because they are basing this on the use of rhizomes in obviously a thousand plateaus and they're also using capitalism and schizophrenia as the basis of their fanfic it is wild and it is by h uh w underscore campbell underscore junior and i will say they have not updated this since 2012 oh no it might never end i'm gonna send the link to mine in the thing because I can't read the whole title but I do think it's worth looking at and the title is which I can't read fully because it's got swear words that one time I was behooved to save the world of rock and roll by a big breasted dragon lolly the fundamental arc was scar all along question mark exclamation mark featuring cardinal official and Yeah, so we got shit. Some of the tags are Zizek, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Jeff Bezos. We've also got Colonel Sanders, <laughs> Jacques Lacan, Kate Bush, <laughs> Azalea Banks, Zac Efron. We've also got Megan the Stallion and Norville Shaggy Rogers. I'm not going to lie, I'm going to read it. <laughs> this is the long awaited sequel to that one time I was behooved to save the world of rock and roll by a big breasted dragon lolly. I I love fan fiction. <laughs> so yeah, there we go. Yeah. That was um, my one. Oh my god. Uh Veronica, did you manage to find I didn't one? Didn't find anything, no, but I, I know you two are specialists, especially Paula. So I I relied on your talents. I feel like I stepped up to the mark. Veronica, do you want to, before we go, because we've been here for many hours, do you want to shout out any work or socials that the audience should know about to follow you? I don't really have public social media yet, but if I should have public social media at the point where you're publishing this, I'll let you know. Yeah, I think the listeners should know that I basically bullied Veronica into getting an Instagram, which is private, and you should not find her. But I, yeah, I bullied you into one and you barely use it. So (laughs) I don't think it's going to happen, but I hope one day. I'm so glad you did because now I'm like open or the world of art memes open itself up to me and I'm so glad that this happened to me our obsession I'm not gonna say anything else I'm gonna leave it as a mystery but we have an obsession with a person and we follow that person religiously and the girls that get it get it and the girls that don't don't (laughs) sorry my flatmate decided that this is the opportune time to use a blender on that note we should leave (laughs) goodbye everybody thank you veronica thank you you so much for listening to theoryish we really appreciate it and would love to hear your thoughts check out our instagram facebook tiktok and twitter at theoryish underscore pod for up-to-date information and please rate follow and leave a review wherever you're listening to the podcast if you're interested in finding anything we have mentioned in the episode please check our show notes or description to find more details you can also contact us at theoryishpodcast at gmail.com see you next time goodbye